If we were going to try to just do a little quick recap, last week the seals, I think, describe what is probably best described as saying the deterioration of humanity uh, through time and up to the end of time. Uh, you see conquest, military conquest coming and just ravaging people. You see violence with the red horse coming and just destroying people. You see economic meltdown, uh, people uh, taking advantage of each other through a, an economic system, uh, at something so critical as food, uh, you see just a, a lot of those things happening. Uh, the trumpets are less focused on uh, the, the humanity piece of it and, and more focused on the, the earth, the natural and even supernatural side of things. It, it describes less what humanity does and more a, a result of, or more a description of what happens to the earth, and we can, in our own minds, draw the, uh, draw the connection on what it's doing to humanity. Uh, and these trumpets here, uh, particularly the first four, are very focused uh, on nature. Uh, last week, as we talked about the, the seals, we saw that they are essentially a preview of God's judgment, uh, and I, I sort of suspect that they are a divine description of what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70. Uh, these continue with that, but now it's not a preview, it's sort of the real deal, come and visit it upon the earth. Um, we're going to skip over chapter 10, it's one other of the beginning sort of business notes I just want to let you know about. Um, it's not because I'm scared of chapter 10. It's because God told John to just seal it up. John hears the seven thunder say something, and, and, and God says, hey, John, don't write that down. Don't share that. And so if John couldn't write that down and share that with us, I don't know that we're going to be able to figure much out about it. If you pick up any commentary in Revelation, they've got at least two or three good theories as to what it is that God said to John in the seven thunders. I will tell you, though, if God told John not to share and John didn't share, then who is anybody else to say what happened there? So we're going to skip over that. We will learn this piece from it, though, uh, that God keeps things, a few things, secret. There's a divine mystery in life, and... Despite all the things that God has revealed to us, there is so much that God has not revealed to us. And so we can only marvel at His mystery and wisdom uh, and His divine understanding. Uh, why don't we, before we get into the text, pray and ask that God's Spirit would guide us uh, in our reflection and, and learning here this morning. Gracious Lord, we come to You and we look at this text and all of the images are very vibrant. Some of them are frightening. And, uh, Lord, as we come to this, we pray that you would give us courage to understand, to apply, that you'd give us wisdom to learn. And, Lord, we, we come to this text in great humility, knowing that we don't know everything, and even the things that you've revealed to us, even some of that we have questions about. And so, Lord, if we're going to understand this, we don't need our own understanding but yours. We pray that as we come to the text this morning, you would give us that. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. When was the time you were the most aware of the power of God? Can you, can you think of a time maybe when you really felt aware of God's power? I know a lot of people, when you, when you travel, people, people said they marvel at God's power in, in natural places often, you know, like the, the ocean or, or the mountains or something kind of of that nature. We kind of, we look at that or maybe a, a beautiful sunset and, and we think, man, God is so powerful. We, we even look at acts of destruction, you know, like a tornado coming through something. And we, 
and we're, af- we're afraid of it, but at the same time we marvel at the power that wind has. And we think God is commanding these things, and God is in control of these things, and we think of how powerful God is in the midst of all of nature. As we think about God commanding nature, we look at these first four trumpets, and we see that the power that we've seen God exercise in nature uh, in some ways doesn't compare with what's coming. Uh, Let's look here at verse 6, chapter 8. It says, Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets made ready to blow them. This is as a result of the seventh seal being opened up. Uh, Verse 7, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were hurled to the earth. And a third of the trees of the earth were burned up, and a third of the trees and all the green grass was burned up. Uh, The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars so that a third of their light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise the night. Then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew in mid-heaven, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Just to look at that eagle for a second. My goodness, if the first four weren't bad enough, the eagle says that it's going to get worse. That's kind of terrifying, considering the fact that with trumpet one, we saw a third of the earth and vegetation burned as a result of hail and fire. With trumpet two, we saw a third of the sea turned to blood. When something like a burning mountain falls into the the sea and destroys a third of the sea creatures and the ships. Uh, Now, Hal Lindsey, whenever he... You you don't need to buy Hal Lindsey's commentary because everything's a nuclear bomb, okay? So anytime something bad happens, just write, Hal Lindsey thinks this is a nuclear bomb. I think there's one instance where he thinks it's a comet coming in, but but either way, it's that. Uh, Then the third of the rivers and springs get poisoned when the great star Wormwood falls from heaven. I want to just talk about Wormwood here for a second. Uh, Wormwood, a lot of people have made things about it. Uh, Really, the word Wormwood was so associated with bitterness that most people think this is bitterness with a capital B. Okay, It's, it's one thing to say, boy, that tastes bitter. But, but to describe the bitterness is, is something else altogether. Uh, of all the foods that there are, there are very few I hate. There is one, however, that I hate above all food, and that is the Brussels sprout. I mean, I really, Amen. I mean, I just genuinely hate it. I mean, it's, I just, it's revolting. I mean, it's really revolting. And, and I remember thinking, I mean, how much I hate this vegetable, and, and, and we're at a, I remember when we were in college, we're at a, a, a family's house, I didn't know this family, and they served what I thought was broccoli cheese casserole. Oh man, I'm loving, I love broccoli cheese casserole, that's delicious. So I get a big scoop of broccoli cheese casserole. But friends, it was not broccoli cheese casserole, okay? It's Brussels sprout, like cheese casserole. And at that point, it's not cheese. It's like curdled milk casserole. It's broccoli rotted milk casserole. And I mean, it's terrible. But you, I mean, you got to eat it because you're these people you don't know. And, and now, I mean, for me, like more terrifying than the star named Wormwood would be like the star Brussels sprout falls 
and and poisons the earth. I mean, that would be it. I mean, there's Brussels sprouts in the water. I'm not drinking that, okay? I'm not going to drink it. I, I think maybe that's what's happening here. Some people have got different ideas. Wormwood may be, a lot of times when a star is described in Scripture, it's, it's an angelic power. So it could be that there's a, an angel named Wormwood that comes. Um, that's possible. When Chernobyl blew up, some of you might remember the word Chernobyl is actually frequently interpreted as Wormwood in the English. And so a lot of commentators were like, see, see, do you see? Do you see? It's, 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 it's all happening. This is the trumpet. It's coming. It's right here. It's coming in Chernobyl. Um, obviously, I, I don't think that we would hold to that today. But, but again, I think John here is using more of a literary uh, style to say, man, when the, the thing falls, it's like wormwood. That's how bitter the water is. Uh, move on here to, to star, or star, trumpet four. Third of the sun, moon, and stars are darkened. I, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but all of these events, do they, do they remind you of something else that's happened in, in biblical history? You've got hail that falls. You've got water that turns to blood. Nod your head. This sounds like what? Plagues in Egypt, right? Okay. Plagues in Egypt. Go watch the Ten Commandments if you're unfamiliar with this. <laughs> it's not super accurate, but it's a lot of fun. Um, but I mean, this is a lot like that. Now, now people will, as they read Revelation, go, man, this has so much in common with Ezekiel and Daniel and these other places. Yeah, it does have some of that in common. But I'll tell you, most of the imagery that comes in this book is coming from Exodus. You know, you've got the description of a tabernacle. You've got a description of, of this, lampstands, all these kinds of things. Where's it coming from? That's coming from the Old Testament. It's coming from the Pentateuch. It's coming from Leviticus and other places. And this is what's happening. And, and it's intentional that we would kind of go back to that time when God has worked in, in history, in natural history, and, and has overridden the power and the laws of natural, uh, you know, earth science as we would think of it today, and has made something miraculous happen. It happens here with the, the darkness. Same thing. In Egypt, there was a plague of darkness. Uh, commentator Jeffrey Wilson writes about this. He says, The darkness prefigures the doom of the ungodly and is also the prelude to the new exodus of God's people from under the hands of their oppressors. In an age which looks to the stars for guidance... Does that sound like an age you know of? This verse reminds us that God exercises complete control over the solar system. Uh, these first four trumpets are designed to remind us that God has power over all nature. When you think of where are you going to get your meal from today, a lot of us don't gravitate towards praying for our daily bread. We know that our daily bread is in the freezer. We know it's other places. But this verse says, listen, you think you can take care of yourself? You think you can grow whatever you want? Well, at some point in time, God's going to bring judgment and crops are going to fail. At some point in time, there's going to be judgment and a third of the vegetation of the earth is going to be destroyed. You think you can go to the sea and feed yourself? Let me tell you, a third of those things are going to die. You think you can just get a glass of fresh water? That's going to be turned rotten. God is in control of all things. God is in control of nature. God is in control of the way that you sustain yourself. What is all of this coming from? Well, it's coming from that seal. If you'll remember back to last week, what happened was all the prayers of the saints, the time people prayed for vengeance and justice, the time people prayed to be delivered from their oppressors, all of those prayers were kept and they were hurled to the earth with the fire of God's wrath. And now God is sending these plagues. Why? Just like he did in Egypt, to set his people free, to set his creation free, to set his world free, to reclaim for himself the world that he created and the people he fashioned for his own. That's what's happening here, just like the plagues in Egypt. Just like the plagues in Egypt were sent. Why? Not to pester and annoy the Egyptians, but to deliver God's people. Same thing's happening here. God's trying to redeem the earth, trying to bring people out of it. But it's not just the natural world that shows God's power. No. 
Uh, it's the supernatural as well. Uh, all heaven breaks loose there in chapter 8, and then it continues here in verse 9. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw that a star had fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, again, continuing with this star imagery, um, again, stars are frequently angels. And so if an angel falls, we would call that a fallen angel. I hope I didn't lose anybody. And then we frequently call fallen angels demons. And so there is some sort of demonic power that is given a key. Did you notice he didn't have the key? Okay, did you notice the, the devil himself, the demon himself, did not have a key to the abyss? God had to give it to him. God does not command evil, but he does control it. And at this point in time, he allows it to have uh, rain. And he opens up the, the abyss, verse 2. And from the shaft rises smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. And friends, these are not your run-of-the-mill locusts. These are... I call them the demon locusts. The demon locusts come and they were given authority or power like the authority or power of scorpions on the earth. Verse 4, they are given limits. They were told not to damage the grass of the earth or any green growth or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, these are carnivorous locusts. They were allowed to torture them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torture was like the torture of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7, it says, In appearance, the locusts were like horses equipped for battle. In other words, they're like a war animal. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Uh, when this plague comes, it will seem to have the appearance of authority. But notice it doesn't say they have crowns of gold on their head. That is a sign of true authority. They have something that looks like it. Their faces were like human faces. Um, elsewhere, people translate this more like a man's face. The, the connotation here is likely intelligence. Uh, their hair was like women's hair. If the men are intelligent, according to John, the women are beautiful. And so there's a charm associated with these creatures as well. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. I probably don't even have to tell you what that symbolizes. It means it's dangerous. Okay? They had scales like iron breastplates. In other words, you can't shoot at them and have it do any good. The noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots uh, with horses rushing into battle. They will have tails like scorpions with stingers, and in their tails is the power to harm people for five months. And they have a king as over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two to come. Oh, good. We see here, however, that God's power has moved. It has moved from the natural realm and it has now moved into the supernatural realm. If you thought that the blood and the darkness and the hail was bad, just wait until demon locusts come because it's going to get worse. Now, I know some of this imagery is awfully terrifying um, and it comes worse the longer you go. And so for those of you that interpret Revelation literally, what it means is that things get a lot worse at the very end of time. Now, for those of us that interpret it symbolically, what it means is that things get a lot worse at the end of time. Okay? So whether you take it literally or figuratively, it means things get a lot worse the closer we get to the end. And whether if you're a literalist, and I'll be honest, I'm, I'm mildly interested to see what this would look like, literally. Um, you know, that you'll see that. 
Otherwise, we have to say, you know, there's going to be some sort of demonic oppression and torment that comes. And while it's kind of frightening, notice that God is still in control. God has released them, but he has said, you may not torture those of my people that are sealed. Just like we looked last week. God, God may unleash his wrath. God may unleash his judgment. But it is not going to be unleashed against his people. It doesn't mean you're spared from bad things happening. We see there's a whole collection of martyrs. But God is not going to bring judgment against you. And that's incredibly comforting. Uh, the Heidelberg Confession is not one that I hold a, a lot to. But I, I want to share this, this section from you. It's a catechism. So it's, it's what you teach kids. It's, it's, there's a question and there's an answer. It goes like this. It says, what is the only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I with both body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood is fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yet, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation... And therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto Him. Church, there's something powerful in that statement. And it's echoed here. It says, you know what? If, if BAC says, when I work out, I feel like a superhero. I love those commercials. They're great. Let me tell you, you can work out all you want, but you're no match for the demon locust army. But if you have the power of God in you, even if you don't work out, you have the power to match the demon locust army. Because just having the Holy Spirit inside of you doesn't make you a match for them. It makes you a conqueror over them. And that is the power of God at work in us. Let's move on to the sixth uh, trumpet here. Most, most folks associate this as the second woe. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 9. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels were released who had been held ready for the hour, the day, the month, and the year to kill a third of humankind. The number of troops of Calvary was 200 million. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And he goes on to describe them. And I will tell you, it's, it's terrifying. Uh, if... If the first of these supernatural uh, afflictions is this locust, uh, locusts are not known for being like coordinated. You know, they don't have little walkie-talkies and they don't communicate and say, hey, we're going to take out this and you go over here and take out that. This has now taken the demonic and military oppression to a whole new level. It is not chaotic. It is organized. It seems to be commanded. Its number is 200 million. And if all hell broke loose earlier, it's now gotten organized and has set itself to attack at this point. And so there's an incredible oppression that is released against the earth. Uh, the question again comes, is this going to be some sort of great final battle or is this uh, indicative of just increased military conflict throughout time and as history gets closer to the end, uh, that it's going to get a, a worse um, I agree with, with a guy by the name of Albertus Peters. He writes this. He says, I don't take much interest in locating them, these are the battles, here or there in history, for it seems to me I know them. Have we not twice in 1914 through 1918 and again in 1939 through 1945 seen the bottomless pit opened and the heavens darkened by swarms of evil things that issued from it? Has not the thunder of 200 million hellish horsemen shaken the earth? In our own day. 
Church, I, I think that regardless of how you read that, we can look to our own history and see the power of evil at work in both military conquest and even spiritual oppression. Let me just ask you this. If this happened today, do you not think that all of the earth would be brought to its knees in repentance and seeking God? I mean, that's sort of how we would look at this. We would look at this text and we'd think, my goodness, you've lost a third of the earth and the vegetation. You've lost a third of the, the light, a third of the sea, a third of the water. You've now had demon locusts and this, this army from hell come and is marching against you. You would think that, that everybody would go, my goodness, there's something that we need to do differently. We need to seek God. You would sort of think that that would be the response. But that's not. Chapter 9, verse 20 says, The rest of humankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their fornications or their thefts. You see, just like in Egypt, the plagues brought against Pharaoh, what happens? Pharaoh's heart is continuously hardened against God. Same thing happens. We are not a people that are driven to our knees easily. And so despite the fact that God has shown his power through nature and the fact that he's shown his power through supernature, if I can invent that as a good word, but it fits. Despite those things, there is still people that remain uh, disobedient and unrepentant towards God. Uh, skipping over chapter 10, we come to chapter 11. We see that God displays his power in one more uh, locus, one more area. It's not natural, it's not supernatural, but it's in the church. Uh, Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 through 6. John was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Come and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample over the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days wearing sackcloth. Uh, those of you that are mathematically challenged like me, um, I've given you a note on this. 1,260 days is the same as 42 months. All of those are the same as three and a half years. That will become important in a second. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Anyone who wants to harm them must be killed in this manner. They have authority to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have authority over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Church, when I think about the church, I don't think of the word power. That word doesn't come to my mind. What about you? If you're going to describe the church, how would you describe it? Well, my church is warm and friendly. That's good. That's a good thing. We like to be warm and friendly. What is the church? It's a voice of truth. Oh, okay. What is the church? Well, it's a place we go and we have donuts every second Sunday. It's... If I were to say, what is the church? You go, it's powerful. I don't, that's not something that comes out often. And yet as we come here to chapter 11, I believe that this is what's being described. Some people will say that, yes, there's going to be two witnesses that come at an appointed time, and this is going to happen. Uh, that's possible, but whether you're a preterist or a spiritualist or futurist or a historicist, most people say this is likely also going to be maybe a figurative thing. It's a figurative thing about the church and the church's witness. Uh, 
Notice what these witnesses do. They're there and they're giving testimony to God. Just like the great prophets of old, it says that they have the authority to control when it rains. Just like James said at the end of his, of his epistle. He said the prayer of a righteous man is, is powerful and effective. When John goes to measure the temple, a lot of people think that maybe it's not necessarily the temple, but it's the church as the temple is described in the New Testament. That were stones being fit together. And that the court that's being left out is the visible church and that the part that's being measured is the true church, the folks that really genuinely are obedient to God. Uh, regardless of how you look at it, there's going to be a witness from the church that's there. And there's going to be a church that has power. You know, it said Thomas Aquinas, and this is kind of one of those stories of legend. But it says Thomas Aquinas goes to the Pope one of these days and he's counting all of his money there. And the Pope looks at Thomas Aquinas and he jokingly says, you know, no longer can Peter say to the blind man or the layman, silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas says, yes, but neither can he say, get up and walk. And the implication is that the church, in spite of having gained so much, had lost so much of its spiritual vitality and power. And when it comes to the end of time, how does John describe the church? He describes them as victorious. He describes them as dressed in white. He describes them here as powerful. They minister for three and a half years. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony. In other words, their testimony doesn't get cut short. They get to prophesy until it's done. Then the beast comes up from the bottomless pit, make war on them, conquer them, kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is prophetically called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord is crucified. For three and a half days, members of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb. And the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to the inhabitants of the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and those who saw them were terrified. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched. At that moment, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. The third is coming soon. Church, I, I, I don't know how this plays out, but I, I will tell you that Christ has said this. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And I think the imagery here is pretty profound if we'll stop and think. They have a ministry for three and a half years. And they lay dead for three days, three and a half days. And then they're resurrected. Does that sound like anybody else you know? Does that sound like Christ's ministry? Christ's three years of earthly ministry? Christ's three days in the tomb and then Christ's resurrection? It's not an accident. We're meant to think that. Christ's witness continues. That's the message. Christ's power continues. And while people may kill off a prominent member of the church or while they might destroy an organization, they cannot kill the witness of God. They cannot kill the people of God. They cannot kill the church. The church will remain. And so no matter how dark it looks and how bad it gets and how many people fall, the message here is simple. It's that God's witnesses are powerful. Nothing can stand against them. You may think you've got them down, but that's only for three and a half days. Their ministry lasts for three and a half years. Church, God shows His power in these passages through nature, through supernature, and He shows it through the church. 
And finally, when the church is brought up there, we see that time ends. Verse 15. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. All the prayers that we've prayed, thy kingdom come, it's fulfilled here. It takes place here. And again, as we've talked in the past, it seems that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls are kind of all brought together. And in the seventh seal, all of the trumpets are fulfilled. And in the seventh trumpet, all the bowls are fulfilled. And kind of all this thing comes here to this giant climax and crescendo where in verse 9 it says, God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there was flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. In other words, the end has come. You know, all of these things are pretty powerful. Nature, the supernatural, and the church. But again, I don't know about you. I, I, I can see God's power in nature. And I can see God's power in the supernatural as it's described here. But when was the last time you said, you know, I see God's power in the church? I'll tell you, I, I did see it not that long ago. I saw it. Brooke's going to talk about this here. I'm not going to take all of Brooke's thunder. But um, we had the transitional housing graduation. The gal that graduated out of the program, she was just asked to say, hey, t- talk about what this has meant for you. And, and just kind of cut the long story short, she said, you know, this program, she said, it essentially has saved my life. She said, this program saved my life. And she's saying that with all the churches that are there. And I'll tell you, if you asked her, how would you describe the church? I think she would say it's powerful. It's powerful. What about you? I suspect you've seen the power of the church. Maybe you've had it in your life when when things were down and you felt weak and it was the church's strength that got you through. That that helped you get through that hard time, that, that helped you patch your marriage together. Maybe you can remember growing up and it was the church that was there for you and there was something about it that was transformative and it was powerful. You see, when God chooses to display His power, it's just not in the miraculous water turning to blood. And it's not in just the demon locust plague sent on the earth. It's in His church. And His church is powerful. Christ said, hey, listen, you're going to do greater works. You you saw my works? Your works are going to be greater than that. Church, I have a feeling that the reason we see less of God's power is because we just don't recognize that God's power is here. It's within us, and it's waiting to be used. It's, it's waiting to be wrought out as a witness against the world. When you want to see God's power, look to nature, yes. Look to the supernatural, absolutely. But look to the church. God's power is shown in those three things.